Have you ever been with a male band? Who? Me? That's what I'm running away from. I worked with six different ones the last two years. Oh, Rob. Rob? I'll say. You can't trust those guys. I can't trust myself. I have this thing about saxophone players, especially tenor sax. Really? I don't know what it is, but they just curdle me. All they have to do is play eight bars or come to me, my melancholy baby, and my spine turns to custard. I get goose pimply all over, and I come to them. That's all? Every time. You know, I play tennis acts. <laughs> The Lifers Podcast with Scott Lucas, Gabe Rodriguez, and Ben Reiser. And now, here's Scott, Gabe, and Ben. Uh, Have we shaken the shit off from from last week, guys? For me, it feels like I haven't seen you guys in three years after last week's episode. Yeah. That was... Were you guys on last week's episode? <laughs> so I don't know if we... Did we make the the, the show or did we get cut? <laughs> well, yeah, Gabe, you wouldn't know. But Did Dewey, I make the show? <laughs> Dewey texted me and he said, I haven't listened to the episode yet, but a friend of mine says it's just Scott wandering around in the woods. Are you and Gabe on the show? And I said, well, if you make it far enough. but uh, I didn't make it far enough. No. <laughs> no, no, of course not. You're over there selling all those records. Yeah. I'm up to my I'm up to my ears on these records. These this this it's going can we, good. Can we reveal the secret variant? The mystery color is like a, a galaxy milky thing. A galaxy milky just it's blue. What? Everybody, no, it's, it's not blue. blue. It's not blue. It's not it's blue. blue. It looks blue in the picture. Looks blue to me. Milky blue. Okay, Ooh. that's still a blue, right? Milky no, blue. Blue is like a. It uh, looks darker than milky blue in the pictures. Well, the. There's some streaks in it, like the bacon streaks on the bacon one. It's the same right. style. Right. And people dig it. People seems like people are liking it. I actually just got the splattered one, the, the supposedly red, white, and blue one. I got that today in, in my house. Supposedly red, Bacon, white, splatter, milky blue. I don't know what's going on over there. I don't know hey. if you're running a, a the brothel people like- or a... The people like the vinyl. Greasy diner. The people like the vinyls. Yes. And I I'm like- going to put this to bed right now. Okay, thank God. Vinyls is not a word. It's well, not. We, a word. We've 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 gone through this before. I don't I, care. I'm why do you continue again. to say I'm vinyls? Doing it again. Who's saying vinyls? It. I'm going to stop it. Gabe said vinyls. No, that's, it's how stupid I sound when I say it. Mm-hmm. Who says who says vinyls? I had two people tell me something about vinyls, and I'm like, hold it right there. Stop it before you get. Don't. Are these it's, the people on the internets? A few people. Worse than wait, wait. Worse than vinyls is people who say, and I guess we've had this conversation. They say we pieces, have. They said they they, have, they say pieces of vinyl. Like I have two thousand pieces of vinyl in my house. Who says no one? <laughs> no one says that. Yes, they do. Who says that's that? A, that's a Wisconsin thing. No, it's not a Wisconsin. Thing. I like when people go uh, pick up some milk at the Jewels. <laah> <laughs> <laughs> that's an Illinois thing. But I liked. Uh, it's all somebody, Illinois. 
some guy on Facebook said he ordered just the regular black vinyl because well, he wanted to pretend that this album came out on vinyl, this EP came out on vinyl at the at the time it was originally released, and that was the best way to do it. There's that thing going around, this macho question of whether I'm a Harley man. Have you seen this shit? <laughs> They're at, people are asking you that question? No, 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 like, do you think Scott's a Harley man? And then somebody oh. will chime in like, oh, I don't think Scott drives a Harley. No, I don't, motherfucker. I don't drive a Harley. And I'm fine with it. I don't drive, I don't drive a Triumph either. Do you, do you drive Harley? You're right. You ride them, right? You're right. What does Scott ride? Hey, I'm a biker, not a biker. I'm a biker. To clear it up, we're talking about the No Funny Pete vinyl version for the first oh, time we're talking in about 20 bikes. years. Jesus. No, no, we're no. We're talking about I'm trying to move on here. No, we're not moving on. The black vinyl's not even in my hands yet. That's coming next week. If, if the hurricane doesn't ruin everything that's come in my house right now. Uh-oh. So hip, so pre-hipster hipster is going to have to wait longer for his <laughs> record than the, the hipsters. The people that like the virgin black vinyl, you'll have to get it last. Virgin? Uh, Black. Uh, it's it's kind of passe. Easy, black fellas. Easy. Speaking of virgin black vinyls, who's on the show today, Gabe? Steve Berlin. Who who's Steve Berlin? You ask. Who? Uh, from Lost Lobos fame and, and producing all these uh, bands from the early eighties and nineties, such as and who? zero zeros. Yeah. And tens, and twenties. He, he's got a, a Steve long Berlin resume. is. A lifer, man, and oh, he's yeah. he's won more Grammys than you've made color variants of vinyl, Gabe. That's about he, true. That is true. And he's 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 he was in the scene in uh, you know late seventies, early eighties, turn of the turn of the decade, eighties L.A. thing with the Blasters and. He wasn't in X, but he was around X, the band, not the drug, and, and the band he eventually joined and is into, 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 to, 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 today. Los Lobos. And let's not forget, he plays sax on one of my favorite replacement songs, One Wink at a Time, off of their last album. Your favorite replacements record. Not my favorite replacements record, but I heard I mean, it was. I don't really have a favorite replacements record. It's I all, heard you like to drive your work. I heard you like to drive your Harley Davidson motorcycle. That is true. And listen to All Shook Down? Is that I do have All, all Shook, Shook Down. Down on black vinyl. That's not true. I don't think that album has been ever released on vinyl. Mm, that'll change. That'll change. That'll it's change. about to be a box set of Tim, that's right. Remixed, remastered. I heard, I heard one of the remixes. It's, it's pretty great. Yeah. But Steve from uh, Los Lobos, he was, he was here a couple weeks ago at Metro for the XRT tribute to Lynn Bramer, um, and our good buddy who we had on the show last week, John McCauley. Uh, was John on the show last week? Gabe and I, I weren't really part of that. Think John was on the show last week. John, were you on the show last week? <laughs> He's asleep. Did you get that Rolling Stone article I sent you, Ben? Which one? Let's pull it up here. What was it about? It was about your favorite movie, uh, Oppenheimer. 
Oh yeah, I did see that. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I clicked. <laughs> so apparently, there's some. Uh, we yeah, should talk about too, this. It seemed too strange to me. I was like, I don't even understand what this what this headline means. No, it's real. Uh, the headline is "Why can't we stop talking about the anti-porn Oppenheimer lady?" Now, a couple oh, of weeks. I did read the article. I'm sorry. Oh yeah, I did read it. Yeah. So the Florence Pugh uh, nude sex whatever scene from Oppenheimer came up on this show. Did we make it? Did it make the cut though? I Some of like it you... made the cut. Okay. I, I cut out most of it. But you, Ben, are <laughs> yeah. pro Florence Pugh nude scene in Oppenheimer. And I am not a fan. I, I think know, I, in general, I'm pro Florence Pugh and I feel like you are not. In general, I Even think... Even though she's in your favorite Little Women. She, I, I, I like her in Little Women, but I also seem like... I sometimes feel like she's being forced on me. Uh, and this happens a lot. You know, like I was watching... Uh, don't ask me why, but I was watching Masquerade, Rob Lowe, uh, Jennifer... Not Jennifer, Meg Tilly. Mm-hmm. And remember when Meg Tilly was everywhere and now she's nowhere? Yeah. It's like, it's like sometimes... They try to make fetch happen. Hollywood tries to make fetch happen, and it doesn't happen. And clearly, everyone loves Florence Pugh, except for me. But I just can't get over the feeling that Florence Pugh is fetch. Uh, so anyway, there's this f- fucking psycho freak that uh, has a TikTok channel. Uh, what's her name? Jordan K. She looks like a... She looks... Uh, I, I don't know. Whatever. I don't know her. But, uh, she had a, a traumatic experience. She found out her husband l- looked at porn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As, as unheard of as that might be. She, she says, I was a mess. I was crying every day. I wasn't eating. And there was so little information that I could find. I thought, is this just my husband? Uh, whatever. So that's not. There was so def- little information that she could find. About, you know, what to do. <laughs> yeah. How okay. to start eating again. All right. Well, that is so somebody had asked her for advice for my husband and I wanting to watch Oppenheimer, but being fully, fully afraid of the Lawrence Pugh scene everyone is talking about. Say, okay, so Gabe, you haven't seen it. Florence Pugh gets nuded up in this movie. But this woman, Jordan Kay, uh, she and her husband made a game plan. While watching this movie in theaters, her husband would lay his head on her shoulder and close his eyes during the sex scenes. Why does this make me so angry? It does, though. Because oh, you know it, it that just... when he, you know that when he wasn't laying his head on her shoulder, he was shaking his popcorn. You know that. Oh, that's probably what, that's probably what it is. It's just really uh, grow the fuck up, or don't go see Oppenheimer. Right, Gabe? You're afraid of Florence Pugh's nudes, so you're not going to go see Oppenheimer. It really just, sounded, didn't it sound like the husband was like, like she, she was directing him to like suckle her at these It, at these it feels interludes. like it, doesn't it? Yes. it? It feels like Mike Pence and calling his <laughs> wife mother and not being allowed to be in a room with women. I mean, uh, what kind of freak is this? <laughs> oh boy. And, and you know, these people want to make laws for the rest of us. That's what this woman is talking about doing right now. She wants to start making laws. And also, if 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 that scene is what they think is pornography, then I I'm assuming these people have never uh, don't have children because that's not porn. Well, see, that's 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 the point in it. See what it that that's the point in it that uh, in she's it? 
in it. She's in using it. this thing like, you know, kids are being subjected to hardcore porn much too young. And I've got, sure, mm-hmm. sure, do something about it. Take away their phone. Mm-hmm. Don't go after Ben and his love of Florence Pugh's nudes. <laughs> yeah. Gabe, who's on the show today? Oh, we already asked you that. <laughs> so one yes, other you. thing about movies, I don't know if he's still awake, but uh, I'm thinking about calling him. Who's that? Uh, Justine's dad. Apparently Justine's dad sends an email today. He loves The Last Voyage of the Demeter. Mm-hmm. Loves it. What does he think about BBC's Dracula on Netflix? Well, see here, you know, right <laughs> off, I was like, Demeter sucks. It's a terrible fucking movie. He's like... Yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. So then I tell him about the Netflix one. He goes, no, I, don't, I don't really care. You know, it's, I still like this movie. I don't care what you think. It's not going to change my mind. I'm like, no, no, no. I hate this thing, too. So you'll probably like this, too. Let's just call him, see if he's awake. All right. It's been, it's, it's it's, been too long since we've had Mike. Michael you think his show. eyes are okay by now? From the, <laughs> the chip? I hope so. Let's see. That was, that was a year ago. Oh, I just rubbed my eyes because I touched it. <laughs> and it burns. Oh, it fucking burn my eyes. <laughs> All we can see is oh, like somebody's ah, some yogurt to him. Oh. Ah, <laughs> this could be bad. I hope we're not waking him up. I feel, I'll feel really horrible. Why the hell is Scott calling me? If this is about that goddamn vampire movie. No, he's not going to pick up. Your call has been forwarded. Okay. <laughs> we'll get him next week. and Maybe we can get him to watch the BBC thing. You got anything, Gabe? <laughs> I'm burnt out. I'm, I'm putting in too many hours. I need more sleep. Maybe next week after this hurricane comes through, I'll be better, but... Uh... Oh, yeah, you should be getting out of there about now, right? No, we don't have to leave. The people on the other side of the state are leaving. I'm not. We don't no one cares if you leave or not? What's uh, the hardest part of a, of a mass shipment like this? Do you have to lick your own stamps? What goes on? <laughs> my fingers are numb. I got blisters <laughs> on my... No. I, oh, yeah. My pinky. Yeah, yeah, there we my go. Pinkies, right. My pinky's killing me because of this tape gun. I got oh. to put three rolls of wraps of tape around these boxes. It's it's. Can't you get more current technology isn't there like an electronic tape gun you know like mechanized and electronic an electronic stamp licker somebody made fun of me hide it from the wife anthony made fun of me anthony Herrera, our buddy because i used uline catalog paper and his stuff to to pack the boxes what am i supposed to use that's punk that's punk using old (laughs) magazines to pack your bag uh packages that's punk is that the most punk thing you did this week that's the real most punk thing i did all week using old magazines as filler for these record boxes all right keep up the good work gabe when do i get my uh vinyl i was gonna ship them all together uh i gotta send brian some to it but i don't have the black vinyl yet if you want them all together 
Nah, it doesn't matter. It's fine. Don't don't worry about me. No, I'll, I'll, I'll put it all together. They, they no, actually... seriously, don't worry about me. Let me be the... Uh, just set a couple aside for me. I really like that blue. I know, but it's it's going good. Uh, but I'm, I'm crazy busy with work and stuff, so I, I don't have time for anything these days. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Uh, uh, I worked 13 hours yesterday. It's the most I worked in 20 years. What's going on? Is it your busy time? Yeah, right around this time, we, we started getting... Busy right, right around Labor Day. So whatever. It's OT. I get time and a half. Ooh, I don't ever get the OT. Do you get OT, Ben? No. You're a sucker. <laughs> <laughs> I get. Listen, I get paid to show people movies. Well, I, sounds, I still can't job. believe it. Yeah. <laughs> and you get paid for people to play your song on their record. That's true. That is also true. Or you get paid to write your own song and play it on the record. Sped up That's, even. That has not happened. Oh, yeah. We'll see what happens with that. What an unbelievably stupid strain of nonsense this is. It's a thing, though, right? Is, I, is, I guess. It's a thing. Is this something that they can get away with? Apparently they? they can. The record companies. I mean, oh, are they the, speeding up Led Zeppelin songs? Wait a minute. <laughs> You're saying that the record company is the one that put that out? I'm certainly saying that they're cool with it. Oh, well, I just think, no, I think that the issue is that, like, they're not able to detect it easily. My understanding is that, that the sped up versions don't immediately get flagged by Instagram and TikTok. And so that's why people are using those. Mm. Okay. Although yours seems, like, sped up beyond any reasonable attempt to avoid copyright issues i read something and, and like the general consensus just seemed to be that you know kids are fucking mutants now and everything's got to be faster oh well i don't know about that yeah i don't i don't either i don't know about any of it and i and i'm pissed that i do i'm as pissed about that as i am pissed that i know oh, there's somebody named showed up and up and up. no i know there's somebody with the last name of ramaswamy i you know i i don't need to know that either <laughs> oh, okay. right like that there's there's guys suckling their wives. <laughs> is, is this the new unplugged? Is what I'm saying. Pew, is, is this... <laughs> the sped up version is that just a different unplugged play uh, fad that we're going through? People want to hear a different version of it. Well, there was a thing called Chopped and Screwed, where they would slow down hip hop tracks, and you know when everybody was like getting into drinking a syrup. Uh, that's concert. And so they would slow down tracks and they'd kind of fuck with them. And so this is the opposite direction. They, they, there was a thing a couple of years ago where it was like they were, they were slowing down songs, but keeping the pitch the same somehow. So it was like an 18 minute version of a three minute song, but it was still somehow. Oh, that's called vanilla fudge. <laughs> yeah. Pew. Mm hmm. Pew, pew, mommy, pew. That Ramaswamy guy is is a is a really uh, slick tool. You're just happy to have somebody to complain about that isn't the governor of your state. That guy, sucks. he's gonna be the next one. He's gonna he's gonna be the next one. I went to high school like, with a guy like that, and I hated him. I don't remember many people from high school. I don't know if you remember that. Because you thought people. you were better than everybody, Gabe. No, I just didn't give a shit. I just I didn't I didn't that's, go to school. That's that's no. That's the first thing that people say when they think they're better than everybody. I don't give a shit. I don't. You thought you were better than everybody in high school, and you still think you're better than no, everybody in high school. It doesn't matter what I think about 
myself or anybody. It's just mm-hmm. I'm me and you're not. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So what? I liked there was a, a nice <laughs> amount of humility that Gabe showed last week uh, when you said he, that Gabe had a fascination factor that people <laughs> are interested in him, fascinated by him. And, and Gabe said, there's maybe three people that are interested in me. <laughs> You know what he's doing. He's like, he's like, that's how he keeps it going. Keeps it going. What do you mean? Keeps it going. He just keeps the thing going. Like, oh, fascinated with me? No, no. And people no. go, wow, he's so modest too. I'm even more fascinated with him. <laughs> he was excited and 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 didn't hide his feelings about Kyle Canaan. No, no. If it's Kyle Canaan, he's like, wow, Kyle Canaan loves me. Uh, no, I was because I, I thought he was making fun of me under, <laughs> under, under everything else. But then afterwards you were like, hooray, he's not making fun of me. Yes, that's right. That, that's good. So what bugs you about this Ramaswamy? He's a slick. It's hard to say. Mm-hmm. Are you saying that, that you, that he says stuff in a way that you kind of believe him for like, no, you no, think he's making it. a good point? No, I don't believe anything he's saying. Oh, really? Ramaswamy is an insufferable tech bro who needs to have his dick kicked in. There, I said it. <laughs> wow! Not only did you say it, but it's, it sounds like you had it written down. No, man, it just comes out. <laughs> Pew, Mowry. Pew. <laughs> hey, everybody! It's Steve Berlin. Hi, howdy. How are you? I'm good, man. How y'all doing? Good. I think I came in a little hot there, Excellent. right, Ben? Did you hear that? No, it was all right. Should we take that again, Steve? I'm good. No, no, no. I, you know, I'm I don't know what your standards are, so we'll have to. <laughs> we have no standards, no practices. So okay. I saw you a few weeks ago at the Lynn Bramer thing at the Metro. Yeah. You were great. Did you Thank have fun? You. I did. It was a slightly unusual night in that uh, right. we only had uh, three of six Lobos, but uh, we tried to do our best. Yeah. Oh, so you had three, because somebody else was telling me to well, call it. Dose yeah, they were two. Well, it's me and Caesar, and then we had Fredo, our our, our drummer, was there. Well, you know uh, Jolly, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So Jolly was like, "They're Dos Lobos tonight." <laughs> yeah, it was those. Yeah, and then we did a show with the uh, minus the drum, and then last past weekend we did a show with with a uh, without the drummer and without a bass player. So it's been. Um, it's been walking wounded for the last month or so, but yeah. hopefully everybody's going to be okay. Right. Well, you've had a long history with XRT. Um, yeah, also. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, in some ways, it almost seems to me like XRT's aesthetic, I guess, if you want to call it that, is almost informed by that relationship with you guys and, and bands <laughs> like that. That's interesting. Uh, you know, I don't live there, and so I don't really, you know, I mean, I have a sense of what, uh, you know, what that relationship is like for people that are just listening to the station, but uh, it's, uh, it's certainly um, been key to our, uh, our growth. You know, it's like the, the, their, their blessing and their support over decades, really. I mean, from the very beginning, like from the first record has meant, uh, yeah. has meant a lot, you know, it sort of validated us in a moment before we had any, you know, you know, the world was aware of us really. And uh, you know, the fact that it's gone on for, this many years it's uh you know like we're chicago is far and away our, our best city in the world i mean way more than los angeles or san francisco or anywhere really? else 
And wow. I, I would say 100% is, would be XRT. Yeah, for real. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it was a good night. I mean, you know, it's obviously sad because of, yeah. of Lynn, but uh, it, was, uh, it was pretty emotional, and it was, it was awesome. Yeah. And, yeah, and I, I loved, uh, I, I thought Bob was, Bob Mould was great. Uh, the, uh, I forget, I don't know what they call themselves, but it was Kelly and uh, Nora and, uh, and like the, all the local guys. I thought that those guys sounded great. Yeah, they were called the Lindberghers. The Lindberghers, yeah, right. right. They were great. They were, I thought they were amazing. They did that band song and it killed me. Yeah, no kidding. I, everything, I mean, the choices were great. The band was great. I, I really enjoyed that uh, a lot. So let's talk about you. You grew up in, wait, did you grow up in Philadelphia or were you just born there? It's Philadelphia. Uh, I was born there and I grew up there. I, I was there till I was, uh, what was it, like 19 I left. Yeah. So was there, were you in the, the Philadelphia music scene? Uh, no. I mean, I, I played with, with bands there, but um, when I was there, uh, I couldn't really, you wouldn't call it a scene, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was certainly not a scene like anywhere, like anywhere else that I've ever lived. You know, I wasn't... Uh, I mean, there was a, there was stuff happening and, you know, as a, you know, as a 12, 13 year old coming of age and learning about music and learning about my instrument, it was a great place to be just because there were so many, I mean, there were amazing musicians everywhere. It was a great jazz scene. Uh, I was sort of a slight jazz snob. So I was, uh, you know, I got to see Sun Ra play a lot wow. and people like that. Um, <laughs> so it was, uh, it was great to be from, but it was, there was no nothing I would call a scene. I mean, the, the only thing that was going on musically and why I moved to L.A. was there were some guys who were playing um, as the band of the Soul Survivors. Remember, uh, Expressway to Your Heart. So those yeah. were two brothers, Richie and Charlie Ingui. And they had a killer band, all of which all of whom were mostly New Yorkers who had moved to Philly. Uh, and they were amazing. And uh, so I would just hang out with them and, and jam and stuff like not with the Soul Survivors, but they had a place in downtown, like a loft in uh, downtown Philly. And we just go hang out and drink and play and get stoned and stuff like that. And then they, as a group, decided to move to Los Angeles and uh, were there. And not long after they arrived, they got um, they were um, both Billy Preston and Greg Allman's backup band because they really were great. I mean, they were killer players. But they got to LA and they they were like within months they were doing all the stuff and uh, they reached out to me and they said man you got to come out here it's easy picking so oh. I packed up and I arrived uh, Christmas '74 uh, like Christmas New Year's Eve week and within um, two weeks like I, I they by the time I got there they lost the Billy Preston gig and then I did one rehearsal with them with Greg Allman which went great but that was the era when he was with Share. Uh, uh -huh. And when he would like routinely like leave his life, like he would just check out of his life and disappear for a week. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember that shit, but it would be like, yeah. you know, he would just literally like check out of his life and go to like, you know, the desert or whatever with a bunch of, you know, underage girls. And, you know, the <laughs> National Enquirer would find him and, you know, like out him and then come back and then he'd leave again. So it was when he was uh, doing that kind of stuff. And we, we had one rehearsal. And it was, you know, I was like in heaven. I was the biggest Almond brand, almost brothers fan in the world. So I was like, you know, my life, I've hit my peak at 19. And uh, we we went to, uh, there was one dinner that we went to at this place called Dharma Greb, which was this um, kind of legendary Moroccan restaurant. You know, you sit on the floor on these pillows and the waiters serve you, you know, tea. And it was, it was nuts. I, you know, this is like literally two weeks after my arrival. And um, 
so we're we're in there. We're we're having a big time, you know, drinking, snorting, smoking. And then like an hour or two hours into it, we're like, hey, anybody seen Greg? Like, ah, no, it's already, you know, he's probably in the head or something. Like, you know, and like we're like partying on. And then like, you know, li- literally two hours goes by and there's no sign of Greg. And sure enough, he had just checked out again. He just <laughs> took off, left us with the, the thing was like $1,400, $1,200 bill. I forget exactly what it was, but none of us had the money. And it was uh, mildly embarrassing, to say the least. And that was the end of that gig. I never, I did you know, I don't think I, I'm pretty sure I, I never saw him again after that. So, so you know, I, I got uh, I got introduced to Hollywood the hard way right off the bat. So how do you get from that to playing with the Blasters? Uh, well, uh, let's see. From that, um, I uh, uh, you know I that that band um, stayed together, and um, we made a we 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 actually you know before there was a scene in LA, we were playing like um, all around, and this would be like seventy six, seventy seven. Uh, we made a record for Casablanca, which is like a whole other podcast to itself. Uh-huh. Anyway, so um, I was just sort of like somewhat aware of this thing that was developing in Hollywood and sort of hearing about it and like just sort of like kind of sniffing around on the scene. And um, I became friends with a guy named um, Fast Freddie Patterson, who was sort of like, oh, you know, he was he was a writer more than a singer, but he had a band called The, Preci- the Precisions with two E's. Uh-huh. And so I started playing with Freddie and through Freddie, I met everybody. I met the Alvin brothers and um, the ex folks and black flag. I mean, everybody loved Freddie. He was just like a character uh, to say the least. Uh, and so we, the precisions would open for the blasters. We'd open for, you know, that, that scene was very, uh, it was actually kind of small in the beginning. So like everybody played with everybody. It wasn't unusual for, you know, like hardcore punk band and Freddie and some, you know, rockabilly band to all be, playing together. I mean, it was, you know, normal, really. So right. through that, I got to meet more or less everybody that would then become part of my life, you know, for the next, you know, what, 30 years, whatever, right? whatever the math is. So that's where it started, more or less. And then so then, you know, like I knew the the, the album brothers um, just as friends. And I was working at a music store. And um, this is before cell phones, even like the store, the phone rings of the music store. And it was Dave Allen saying hey do you have a baritone sax we, we need one for a session we're doing tonight and um i didn't have one but i i was in a music store and i looked around and there, there was one on the shelf right by the phone i was like yeah i got one right here <laughs> so <laughs> so i went to that session and that's really where my life changed so that but you that, weren't playing baritone and you didn't even no, start on tenor I, you started I on su- alto I st- right i started on soprano actually oh soprano yeah. okay sorry yeah before kenny g ruined it for everybody right <laughs> um yeah so uh, yeah, I was on soprano and then uh, tenor, and then that day was the first time I'd ever played baritone, literally. Um, but luckily for me, there was there was a decent one. I still have it somewhere. So who uh, made you move from soprano to tenor? Uh, that was the guys in the Beckmar Brothers. They okay. they said uh, you know there was one day in rehearsal, and they said if you show up with if you don't show up with a different instrument, you're fired. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, soprano's you know it's great, but it's really you know it does it you know let's be honest, it's a little annoying. Uh-huh. I mean, I, 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 I was, I mean, I wasn't, it, it wasn't like, you know, I had it, I was like, I had electrified it. So I was like playing it like, um, sounded more like a harmonica than a, than a saxophone the way I used it. Oh, but it was well, still it sort it, of it, sound it, like that, that wild night. That's an alto on, on the wild night. That's an alto with a, with a, uh, phaser. Uh, it's harder to describe, you know, to be honest with you, it's, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not going to toot my own horn pardon the pun but it didn't really sound i mean it was pretty unusual sound I've, <laughs> I've 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 
simulated it with uh, some of the stuff I do around here, around Portland. I, I, I use, um, I have like a toy saxophone that, that I, electronic saxophone that I use, it's sort of a similar sound, but back then it was, uh, yeah, it was kind of unusual. I tried to make it sound like, honest to God, my, my aspiration was to sound like little Walter on uh, Blue Midnight. Like there was yeah. a, like I wanted to sound like a, like an amplified harmonica. Cause it is, I mean, it's harmonicas are single read, you know, soprano single read. Um, so that was my, that's what I was aiming at. So right, but what's that but thing it, yeah. that Jack Black plays? Is that a saxaboom? Is that a yeah? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a toy as well. This uh... <laughs> yeah, hold on. So this is one. Learn about your woodwinds with Steve Berlin. Your toy woodwinds. You're a toy woodwind. <laughs> well, it's got a case. It can't it's be just, that much. Yeah, it's got. A, no, I mean, my metric case. It's a oh, uh, Casio DH200. Gabe, you got one of those, right? I, if you have one, I mean, they don't they don't make them anymore. So hold <laughs> on to them. I, you know, I have like five or six of them because they break all the time. Who is that guy that you said that you were playing with? Like uh, Lee, uh, Lee Allen. So Lee was the, um, the, the guy with the, oh, the fun name, Fast oh, Sam? Uh, Fast Freddy. Fast yeah. Freddy. Now, were you playing with some dude named Top Jimmy? Yeah. By that time, the scene had really uh, like kind of developed. Like that was when I started with Freddie. It was just kind of started to like bubble up, and then by the time, uh, so then I got on the radar, and I was playing with like literally like seven, eight, nine different bands. Like it was not unusual for me to have like three shows in one night. Like just drive all around Hollywood. And then I'd say with somebody, the you know, just because there were not that many uh, saxophone players on the scene, and I could sort of, I mean, I was decent Pretty enough smart. to to fit in with any anybody. I mean, I guess I was playing, you know, you name it, like hardcore punk rock and R&B and you know, experimental crazy shit. So um, yeah, I, I was kind of a chameleon, I guess. Uh -huh. But then I got on. Then I met this guy, Top Jimmy, who was, um, you know, he was really kind of a legendary figure. He actually like Freddie was not really a singer and but jimmy was a great singer jimmy I, was like a really I, amazing this dude. is blowing my mind steve because i didn't know top jimmy was a real guy because there's oh, a yeah. van halen song called top yeah. jimmy and yeah well, david lee roth was a huge fan he'd come down all the time he he, he loved jimmy so that uh, song's was, about him yeah it's a real guy It was Top Taco Jimmy because he used to work at a place called Top Taco and he would feed everybody, you know, like nobody had to pay for years. So Top, top it was Top Taco Jimmy and it was Top Jimmy. And then so Jimmy had a band and pretty much everybody at one point or another played in his band from John Doe and Dave, Dave Alvin and, you know, you you name it. Uh, but by the time I joined, uh, it was sort of a kind of a set band. I mean, it was uh, this guy named Carlos Guitarlos. A guitar player uh chris Puba bailey who am i forgetting um i i you know the sands of time and all but yeah, it was yeah. uh you know it was a real band like we would play and we had a gig every monday at this place called the cafe de grand which was this kind of a really shitty um chinese restaurant and it was the basement of the restaurant um every i mean they they started having shows there all the time but um, initially it was just every monday night was top taco or sorry top jimmy top. and everybody like it was the place to be it was literally like it was the, the hot spot on a monday night you get a, all these actresses and actors and you know and Helen guys would come by it was super super fun 
Um, and it was a shit hole. I mean, the toilet would overflow all the time. Like you walk it, you never knew when you hit, when you got to the bottom of the stairs, you never knew what you were going to step into once you hit the floor. It was some nights it was just covered with like, God knows what, but you know, it was Hollywood in the early eighties. So nobody gave a shit and music was great. The vibe was great. Um, anything could happen on any given night. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it's the punk scene. I mean, you're playing shows with black flag, right? Uh, not many. I mean, that was, it was, uh, I mean, those guys sort of, you know, right off the bat, were sort of off in the world, but we did do, uh, you know, Lobos played a number of shows with black flag. Um, but it was like the way I would describe it is just like, there was no, uh, you know, like the categorization, like, Oh, you know, this is a punk show and that's an R&B show. And that's a whatever mm-hmm. rockabilly show. There was none of that initially. Like everybody, the scene was so um, like brand new and everything and everybody was so exciting that it was like they would just put band, like three like three just completely random bands on what a bill and it was not unusual it was great it was really cool because it was like and the same people would go to like fans of everything because everything was fun and exciting and everything was you know everybody and everything in it was brand new like i was telling a story that like I didn't know John Doe's real name until like a year ago, and I've been friends with him. You know, I was in the Flesh Eaters in 1979. Wait, that's not so, his real name? No, it's not his real name. <laughs> believe it or not, but it's like you know, like we everybody showed up in in this moment, and you could just decide whoever the fuck you wanted to be. You could be, you know, Maxine. You could be, you know, whoever you felt. You know, like it was your name, your background, your identity. Like you could literally pick who you wanted to be and that was who you are and that was fine and everybody it was it was whoever you know everybody just accepted it there was no like you know what's your real whatever it was just like it wasn't a thing it was just like everybody got to pick who the hell they wanted to be and it was uh it was beautiful it was really exciting and every night there was something amazing i mean you go see you know wall of voodoo on a you know like just on a tuesday random tuesday night at a club in santa monica it was unbelievable yeah it was great but like the Blasters and X, I mean, they're all signed to Slash Records at this point. I mean, is the Slash Records? They were not well, not initially. Seen. Like, you know, like the first couple of years, there were there were there was there, you know, like it was either like really really indie recordings or or not recording. Right? And so the the uh, the first Slash record, if I'm not mistaken, was was the X first record was Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, um, and at that time, I was playing with a band called the Plugs. Who mm. were actually offered the first slash record, but they turned it down because they would the Tito Lariva, who's still a friend of mine and a wonderful, wonderful human, he just had the, the worst in, Yeah. He had the worst instincts in the world. He would just like his whatever he chose was almost ninety a hundred percent of the time he would he chose unwisely. And he would be the first to admit it. But he he was also offered the I first the slash deal, but but he uh, he turned it down. Uh, so X was the first one, and then I think uh, Green on Red, or no, I'm sorry, uh, Gun Club. Right. And then uh, who was also, so the Gun Club, believe it or not, formed out of Fast Freddy's band, because the first Fast Freddy band had Jeffrey Lee, a bass player named Don Snowden, and who was the drummer? I think it was KK, KK Barrett, I think, from uh, who went on to be in The Weirdos, and now he's like the... Uh, Oscar-winning uh, art director in many, many, many movies. Huh. But uh, yeah, so that was when I first met Jeffrey Lee, and um, they didn't. La- that version of the Precisions did not last very long. But at least I got to sort of experience the Jeffrey Lee firsthand for a minute, which was kind of awesome. Uh, and then, uh, and then I think the Blasters was next. And then, but I was that was again that was the the four piece. That was before I joined. 
And what, by then, was, so what, by that moment, that? it was sort of there were labels. I mean, then then it changed a little bit. So then people had records and they were touring around the country. And, you know, like that first this first couple of years, it was like, you know, everybody we just played L.A. and, you know, San Francisco seemed like a long way away. And that's that was sort of like, you know, San Diego, San Francisco, L.A. You know, we just go up and down the I-5 more or less. Right. What was and it then, like being in a van with the Alvin brothers? Well, I wasn't never in the band with the Alvin brothers, but uh, no, the Alvin with, brothers. Oh, the Alvin brothers. Uh, that it was. Uh, it was fun. I mean, you know, they were, <laughs> they would, uh, you know, they would fight about literally everything. So you know, it was you sort of had to be on your toes. You never know, like something would fly by you, intended for somebody else in the back of the van. So you sort of like you really could never. You couldn't really relax. Um, and Phil was kind of somewhat infamous for never taking his shoes off, except like, you know, like it, it was his, he had really his 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 foot. Uh, his feet were a problem in the van, put it that way. So how does it go from that to Los Lobos? So, um, so we blasters were kind of moving up the, the food chain, if you will, a little bit. And, uh, so we went from like opening for people to headlining on off nights to, you know, like a weekend night. And then they're like, you know, we sort of kind of made it when we had a, a four night run at the whiskey, a go, go, mm. which is, you know, it was really like, it, it was the high water mark for, for the band. Like they had never really, you know, that was like as good as it got for, yeah. for LA bands. And one of the four nights was uh, this band Los Lobos. And uh, I had seen a band called Los Lobos opening for, um public image at the olympic auditorium which uh-huh. was this horrible boxing arena in uh, downtown la and i in my head i was like you know well there's got to be another los lobos because these guys were playing folkloric mexican music and um they got the shit kicked out of them by this you know this all these orange county punk rockers right. but sure enough it was the same guys and they were playing rock and roll by, by that so this is like two years later i guess and they're playing this amazing rock and roll that and this vibe that no one, I mean, no one had ever heard anything like them. They were, you know, again, I stress that the scene was relatively small. So, you know, I think I consider myself pretty well informed. I was aware of what, you know, I think almost everybody, if not everybody. And, you know, these guys from seven miles away show up and just like overnight, it was like all anybody was talking about was Los Lobos. Literally every single conversation after that night at the Whiskey to Go-Go was Los Lobos. Like, did you see him? Like, what about... It was unbelievable. And they were amazing. They were, it was an amazing night. When you see them play with PIL, they're playing like traditional yes. folk music. And then do you know what changed in their heads? Well, they, they had, you know, this is like when I saw them with public image, it, like the scene was sort of early as this thing was developing. 
and they were fans of like I was, we were all just fans of all, all the stuff, all this fun stuff that was happening all over town. So they were, they were coming to see the, you know, the blasters and coming to see X and coming to see black flag. And, you know, like they were, they were aware of this thing that was happening and they, they got inspired as well. And they were, so they had this, um, they had this gig at this restaurant and like instrument by instrument, they gradually morphed from acoustic folkloric stuff to, electric you know from like uh vihuelas and and uh, haranas which are the you know the, the little you know mexican guitars to like strats les pauls yeah <laughs> and they were just kind of working it out you know well off the radar and then they got fired imagine that from the restaurant job and they decided <laughs> well fuck it we're just gonna go see if we can make a go of this playing rock and roll so that was what changed they they just decided they were gonna they were gonna go for it and uh they you know they I think, not mistaken, they they gave Phil a cassette that Phil really liked, and that's how they got on the on the whiskey show. And then okay. from there, like we became, you know, I met them, and they said, "Hey, you know, some of these songs have sax parts. You want to come hang out and learn them?" And I was like, "You know, hell yeah!" And that's where it started. I, you know, from that, you know, I learned a few songs, and then I would just kind of hang around them whenever I could, just because I love playing with them. And I love their scene, and it was just. They were, you know, we were all somewhat kindred spirits in a sense. I mean, they were more like closer to my way of thinking than the Blasters were. Like the Blasters guys right. were kind of, you know, they were, you know, tough dudes from a tough part of town who were just all about R&B and blues. And the Lobos guys were, their, their minds were more open. Like they were listening to everything. They were, right. And I, I didn't know any, anything about any, I mean, I knew nothing about Latin music. Zero. Nada. When I started. But through them, I, you know, the same way that I learned like blues and R&B from the Alvin Brothers, I learned about Latin music from them. And it was great. I mean, it was just like the best education I could have ever asked for. Before you joined the band, did you like, you produced that EP or were you joining yeah, um, as you're producing that EP? I start well, I was still in the Blessers and I had, I produced, you know, that because I, you know, I expressed to them that, you know, even back then I, I wanted to be a producer. I had done, I produced the, the Top Jimmy record. I produced, you know, a small a handful of things, but that was what, you know, that was always something I really wanted to do. So they let me produce. There was a couple of soundtrack things they did. And then they got signed to Slash and uh, me and T-Bone Burnett produced the, the the an EP. And then when I started the EP, I was still in the Blasters. By the time it came out, I was in Los Lobos. I had left the Blasters and joined Los Lobos. So I'm not on the the album, the, the EP. I'm, I'm not in the album picture. And then the next record was Will the Wolf Survive? And by that time, I was a 100% member of the band. Right, but you're playing on that record, that EP. Right? I am playing on the EP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was playing all over. So, I mean, I was, you know, just on my way. Just didn't make the album picture. If I see it, I'm so
Will the Wolf Survive comes out, and and that I felt like that was everywhere too. I like saw that video like nonstop, and yeah, it seemed like I was like, what what the hell is this? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it was. Uh, we we got lucky. You know, we we hit at a time when uh, I think people's minds were open. I, I you know I think it was it was a good record. And, um, you know, we just, I think we, uh, we just piqued people's imaginations, you know, in a weird way. Cause I don't think there was really anything like us. I mean, mm. still may not be, but back then there was really nothing like us. So we were like, and, you know, I think, um, you know, we became friends with a lot of bands quickly just cause, you know, I mean, it was, that was, how, you know, I mean, it was hard not to become friends cause we we're all sort of out there slogging on the road all the time anyway. So we sort of got like, you know, to open and and you know have people open for us in a way that sort of grew us uh, in a very in a really organic way you know we, and back I then do. it was also we had uh, you know record company support like you know tour support and stuff like that so we you know we we kind of hit it right at the, the right time right before all that shit went away so it was it was a really good time to to start just a really great time to be doing what we were doing i mean it was mtv which also supported us we, we won a couple of uh, mtv awards you know don't ask me why but you know we were, we were on that a lot and you know like the xrt's of the world were you know mmr in philly um uh you know we we there was there was there was a, a nationwide network of supporting people and labels and friends and so it was like i said it was a really it was a, the last great time to be that American rock and roll band. Yeah. Well, maybe you're probably right. I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I don't I, you know. I, I haven't tried in a while, so maybe, I, you know, but, it, but it, it's been you know, a while for me too. Yeah. But I would say this, like the, the, the fact that we could count on record company support, like we didn't have to take money out yeah. of our tour out of, you know, like what we made on, at the show. Uh, and it was all over the place. Like it was all over the country. They used to have somebody in Boston and Detroit and Atlanta and, you know, like all these like far flung cities that you wouldn't really. I mean, it's kind of hard to even imagine a guy in Detroit now. Like, imagine having a regular company guy in Detroit, right. like there to make sure that you know you were fed <laughs> and you know you had weed if you wanted. Like, you know, it was just like this crazy, crazy cool time to to be doing this shit. So yeah. it was, um, yeah. I mean, I, I and I, when I say that it's the last good time, it's not like it's not good now. I mean, I think, I mean, I think it's great now that bands are entrepreneurial and basically making their own money and not, you know, like not having to. to share it with anybody they, they don't want to it was just like it was easier i think just from the bands that i know that i work with that you know are struggling to you know keep the their bus on the road like we we were it was it was a uh, we were uh it was i think the road was a little easier back then yeah there's definitely no guys in detroit anymore you're absolutely yeah, right about that no, so nor anywhere you're, else you're, you're out on the road a lot at this period but you still want to be a producer was it hard to like balance both of those things no not really only because um i got again i got i was incredibly lucky i got to work with uh 
really interesting people. And it wasn't like, I guess the hard part would have been if I was trying to make a living out of mm. producing, but I was lucky enough to, you know, like what I made with Los Lobos was enough to keep the lights on. So it wasn't like I had to like keep churning the way my friends who just produce records had to. Right. So I was like, again, like just incredibly lucky that I could, you know, make a record in and around the Lobos tour schedule and it wasn't that hard to do and it also to a certain extent it also helped that you know most of those records were not like you know like some records then and now where they take a year to make the record i, I never had that you know like if you were hiring me to make your record we were going to get it done in in a month basically right and so everybody knew that you know going in which was good because you know we didn't do the you know, dilly dallying, let's let's record it 16 different ways and let's have 14 different guys mix it. It was just like, hey, we're going to get this thing done in 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 this little window of time. So it was, it you know, right. it kind of worked out. What was the process like on that Faith No More record? Um, that was um, so that was like early on in my career. And um, I was. I was kind of like just hanging around slash records because it was a fun place to be. There was lots of interesting stuff going on. And um, that demo came through and everybody flipped out. Like I was like just in the room, like the day that they opened up the, the like, for instance, I was in the room when the Violent Femmes demo came in. Like I remember like sitting in the room and the Violent Femmes, the, literally the exact record, the one that, that never, like that record, they didn't change anything on that record. The demo came in, yeah. we put it on the cassette recorder. Everybody's like, <laughs> oh shit, that's fucking awesome. Right. Who are these guys from the Violent Femmes from Milwaukee? What's the story? And uh, they, you know, like from that day, I think it wasn't like maybe by the end of that week they were signed and, and you know, like I wasn't official anything at Slash. I literally, I was just there like hanging out. And I was like, you know, I don't think, you know, well, we should redo the rest. I said, I just remember saying, I don't think you need to touch this thing. It's perfect. Even then, and it's still like to this day, it's still perfect. It's like yeah. that record is completely timeless. It sounds like it was done yesterday. Yeah. Um. So, uh, so the, the so Faith No More similarly, like you know, the 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 the, the demo walked in, and we're just like, oh man, this is amazing. And uh, I went up to San Francisco and met with uh, them and their manager and um they brought along this uh this crazy guy who had done their demos this guy named matt wallace who proved to be a kind of mm -hmm. a genius uh producer and you know that was his first thing but you know you could just tell he was like he was going to be a good one so uh he and i did it together like you know it didn't start that way it was like you know it was me but you know he had done so much of whatever i was going to do like it, they were incredibly well rehearsed um, they knew exactly what they wanted to do in the studio. It was, uh, it was pretty fun. And um, so it was that, that was just, you know, I mean, the only, the weird thing about that record was um, Chuck, the singer that, so this is pre Mike Patton. Uh -huh. He was amazing, but he was um, very, very, very bipolar and unmedicated. And so you never really knew what day, like what Chuck you were going to get. Like some days he'd be your prince and he'd do his work and sing great. And some days he would just want to blow everything up and everybody up. And, you know, certainly me as the outsider, um, it was not, it wasn't a pretty picture right. at all. And it was compounded by the fact we were kind of dating the same girl. So that mm -hmm. didn't help anybody. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't <laughs> me, Chuck and Dwight Yoakam all at the same time. So Dude. That, that was an interesting uh, uh, subtext.
and you know he was you know i mean he was really really gifted like those all the the lyrics like all that stuff was him and he sort of i think you know his his um like his ethos kind of informed them like yeah. that like who he was him and uh, jim the original guitar player they had this like really intense sort of like you know this is like very tribal like there was like this they were like this is how we're doing it you know this is our thing like they were fierce protectors of of the the brand what's what we now call a brand but they were like you know this is you know like i would have an idea and they're like no we don't do that like no we right. do it like this like oh, okay yeah i you know you're right that sounds cool so um <laughs> and i think that served them to you know the, the when they blew up Grammys do you have? Well, I uh, there are five up there. So, uh, <laughs> I think, right? five of them. Yeah, yeah. There's five, uh, and then uh, there's three more that. Um, so the the early days, um, the the producers didn't used to get um, the Grammys. You used to get like a little like a little plaque or a little you know parchment uh-huh. so that you that you produced a Grammy winner. And then they somewhere in the early 2000s, they decided to give uh, Grammys out to the producers. So I have three Not until that, the 2000s. Yeah. So that I have three that predated that. So you could say eight, but five, there's five up there. You, you're by far the, the, the guest on the show with the most Grammys. At least on this you know, Zoom, you have the that, most Grammys. That and $7 will get you a decent cappuccino in downtown Portland. You know, so. Well, I don't know. I mean, some of those records, like, you, you won a Grammy for a record with John Lee Hooker. I mean, how yeah. crazy was it to make a record with John Lee Hooker? The, my favorite part about that one was, um, you know, we loved him. He was a lovable, wonderful human being. Like, he was just, you know... You know, I'm lucky enough to have been around a lot of my heroes, like to have been around, like, you know, we made, did stuff with uh, Willie Dixon and I got to meet Bo Diddley and got to yeah. play with Chuck Berry. And of, of all those guys, like, Johnny Hooker was just like, he was a happy guy. Like, he was a happy, he, and he was really well protected by the people around him early on. So he didn't have like the, like the Bo Diddley tale of woe, somebody like right. buying, you know, you know, uh, his songs for nothing and stuff like that. Or, I mean, it, it might've happened early on, but, but, you know, by the time we met him, he was doing great. He had a, a great band and a great, like all the people around him were, were really like good people. We shared a lot of those people. So we, we knew that they were, they were good people. So, you know, making a record of him, like we were just kind of like a family, like we were already in the family. Like whenever, like he lived in San Francisco, we, you know, we'd see him at our, our booking agent, uh, our booking agent was his manager. So we would, hang around with him a bit um but um so the cool thing about that one was um somehow i don't know how i pulled this off but i i was i loved the beast the sound of the beastie boys records mm-hmm. and um this and i was intrigued by this dude mario c like like what what's this cat you know like, what's this dude all about like these records sound really cool and they keep name checking them so somehow or another i've managed to hire mario c to actually record and mix that <laughs> 
And it was amazing because he hadn't done very little outside of the Beastie Boys world at that point. And he was terrified. Like, he was like, man, I don't know if I'm really like, I don't really do a lot of stuff in recording studios. Like, I like he was, you know, like, I, you know, I just do the show with the, you know, these guys and they let me do my thing. And it's like, no one, no one watches me. And I just like, I don't know what it's like to be in a room full of guys, like expect me to like do stuff. Like I said, just, you know, I said, look, there'll be somebody like we'll hire a second engineer. And if, if, it, if it's overwhelming, just, you know, let me know. And, and you could just kind of pull back and he'll jump in and, you know, know what he needs to know. But he, he jumped in and it was, it was awesome. And he did, he, I mean, you could tell he's, you know, another really, 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 really great engineer. So it, it all worked out. Um, but it, it was just kind of fun for me just cause I was like intrigued by this dude. I just was like, you know, what's he, what's his deal? Like, you know, how does he make these amazing <laughs> sounding records? And this was, I think like roughly around Paul's boutique. So like, you know, he was really That's hitting his stride. Record. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So he was like, you know, a genius, but had done very little like capturing the guys in the room. And I would, to my, in my mind, it was like, everyone wow, wanted to like, talk to Rick Rubin. No one wanted to talk to him. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, I just, you know, like I figured, you know, like, you know, this is what you do with, with like samples. Like imagine like putting a mic in front of John Lee Hooker. Imagine, you know, like how much fun that could be. It, it, you know, I, I guess I talked him into it. this 10-year run with Mitchell Froome and Chad Blake yeah starting with starting with Kiko where Brilliant. we uh where we kind of decided that and again this is a long story how we got there but we decided that we weren't going to um listen to anybody anymore <laughs> like we decided <laughs> that that the records that we wanted to make had nothing to do with anybody's advice around us and uh, we were just going to you know, we were going to go down with, uh, however, you know, like we, we were just like, if we were going to fail, if we were going to get yeah. dropped, if we were like, whatever was going to happen was going to happen on our terms. Right. So we did Kiko with that mindset and it worked out like we, you know, like we, that was a, a big record. So it came time to do a second record. And, um, we had, um, so we had become friends with Robert Rodriguez, uh, you know, who did, uh, Mariachi and then, um, um desperado desperado so we had uh so we got the job of scoring desperado and um the way that robert works is like he like so most movies like i'm working i'm doing a movie right now and i'm scoring a movie so i have uh 31 scenes 31 cues uh -huh. and of those 31 cues there's uh there'll be eight 
songs that we're, we're licensing from elsewhere. So 31 minus eight, so there's 23 moments of music. And if you added all those moments of music up, you know, some are like 10 seconds, some are like a minute. The longest one is a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe in the aggregate, 40 minutes of music, maybe not, I mean, might be even high. Uh, so, and so my job is to get 40 minutes of music for Robert's movies. So in a 90 minute Robert Rodriguez movie, he wants roughly three hours of music and I'm not kidding. <laughs> like he just wants, he just wants every fucking thing, like every idea he, and he likes to actually listen to music when he's filming. Like he, he would literally like, we would give him something and he would put on the headphones and, and like kind of, you could just see him. This is when he shot his own movies, mind you. So, you know, I don't think he shoots his own movies anymore. But back then he was doing it like he was shooting, writing, shooting, editing. Everything was in house at his at his in his house. So. um, So he had just finished like the the plan was to have done Desperado. And then it was like a month or two off where we would tour, but not like a very light touring schedule and then start what was going to be Colossal Head. And, you know, the way that every movie ever worked on goes, like, it's always like, it never, you know, there's always revisions and reshoots and now oh, they changed the script and now oh, they did, you know, like that's the thing that we did that we spent all the time on They cut it out of the movie. So now we got to reshoot and re- rescore this other thing. So um, that happened with Desperado, even though it wasn't, you know, like, I mean, the movie was pretty well done. It was, but it was just like, you know, getting the last, 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 last bits of it right was that ended on a Sunday and then mm-hmm. Monday, the next day we're, we were in the studio with Mitchell and Chad who are at that point had become incredibly busy. So like, it wasn't like, Hey man, could you give us a month or two? Could you wait a couple of weeks? Like we had to, like, it was do or die. We had to go. So we show up and we're, and I know I was exhausted. Um, I think we're all kind of beat up by that process it was still you know we love robert i mean he's a wonderful guy and he's very easy to work for he's you know he's a musician himself so it wasn't right. can't say it was like hard work but it was a lot a lot a lot a lot of like you know like every little you know if you had like a, an idea in the back of your head he would sense it and say hey what's that what's that thing you just hummed like oh it yeah. goes like this and then you have to like turn it into a song right so all right so that's so we show up and mitchell and chad and we're in sound factory and we're like now what like we don't have nothing man we we are like b- as bone dry as you could possibly be and uh we're just sitting there in the lounge like okay well um and then legendarily hidalgo says well what would jimmy reed do and we're all like hmm, mm. jimmy reed do So the first thing we cut was, uh, I think it was Colossal Head. We just like, so it's basically, you know, what Jimmy Reed would do. I don't know if Jimmy Reed would do what we did, but we turned it into kind of like a riff rock record. It was just like, we just found, you know, somewhere or another, we scraped together some cool riffs. And that record was assembled, like unlike any other Los Lobos record in that, you know, like a lot of times the songs would be, you know, there'd be a chord sequence or they'd be a, right. I can't say there's a lot of Los level songs up to that record that would be riff based. Like there would just right. be like a cool riff. Glossolated was, I think, you know, I mean, the final analysis probably, probably not so much, but just to get started, just to have something to do in this month of recording that we had both, we just started like digging around for riffs. So, uh, Head, like, da, 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 like just a riff. Uh, you know, there's a couple others like that. And Viking was 
was just this really badass riff that turned into a really cool song. The last time I see Gabe? Oh, you're going to catch me off guard here. I think we know the answer to this question, but Gabe has a question he asks everybody on well, every episode. And, this is uh, my my one question, but I want to ask a different question before we okay. get to that. Okay. You're, you're talking about Fast Freddy, Top Jimmy, T-Bone. Where, what's your nickname? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> you went this oh, whole man. time just I Steve? Know. Well, um... <laughs> I have an intra band nickname, but I'd rather not share it because it's, it's, you know, I'd rather that just be between uh, my band members, my bandmates and myself. Um, you know, when I showed up in LA, nobody believed my, my real name was Steve Berlin. So I guess, you know, it's like, <laughs> they thought that was, you know, that, I mean, I never thought about it that way, but they, you know, everybody thought that was something I could, you know, like John Doe, they thought, you know, yeah. I came up with some cool, you know, John cool Doe name. finally tells you his real name and he goes, now you. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> all right, the, the canned question that we ask all the guests, um, and I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but we'll ask it anyway. If you're, if you're stuck on a desert island, deserted island, and you had two bands to pick from where you could only listen to this band or that band, <laughs> who would you pick between The Replacements or Iron Maiden? Jesus. Well, obviously the replacements. <laughs> you know, I, I played on a replacements record. One wink at a time. That's one of my favorites. The magazine shit lips is a special double issue. Smells like perfume. She leaves it on the plane. Baggage claim is this way. So watch you walk down that way in a hurry to put an end to this day. She's got the devil in her eyes. Only one way to exercise him. And I got asked to tour with them right after I got married. And I was, I was like thinking about it. And I uh, thought, I don't, you know, I just, I don't think my marriage would survive a replacements tour. And I said, I had to say no. <laughs> Plus it was, yeah, I mean, it would have, you know, obviously interfered with Lobos touring as well, but I, you know, in the back of my head, it's like, I wonder what would have happened if I would have said yes to that. But yeah, that was, uh, well, I mean, biggest you know, mistake the, of your life. Uh, I don't know. Uh, that was a time when, you know, Paul was going through some shit, you know, that, yeah. and you know, the, the replacements record that I'm on, you know, like there's very few actual replacements on it. I mean, it was mostly session guys. Um, I think in the book, I, I assume you guys read the, the trouble boys. book, right. So they, yeah, there we go. <laughs> so, the, you know, like, you know, the, the, he, Bob Merck, I mean, that, that is exactly what went down. Like he was 
Paul was forced to make a record against his will, right. calling it replacements, but it had nothing, you know, it was obviously a solo record. Yeah. But, um, um, when you, I mean, when it, you went in for the session, were they talking, were they, were they calling it a Paul Westerberg solo album or were they saying it was a replacements album? Like they acknowledged it was going to be a replacements record in my head. I mean, I don't think, uh, I don't remember. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I was not in the room for, you know, beyond the sessions that I played on. So I don't know, you know, what went down up to that point, but uh, it was, you know, my understanding, it was a replacements record, but, um, you know, when I showed up, the tracks were done. So, you know, then I would say, wow, that's really cool. And it was like, well, that's, you know, I forget who played drums on it. And so like, right. okay, it's not really a replacements record, is it? But I was just, you know, I was, I'm a huge, I have, I've always been a huge fan. So I was just honored to be there. And I still, it's one of my favorite records. There's, you know, it's so it's a very heartbreaking, as you know, like, you know, you can tell it's the end of the band. So it's like, yeah. It, it tears me apart every time I hear it. Never played on an Iron Maiden record. <laughs> Let me think. Uh, nah, no. You said Scott <laughs> Litt. You, weren't you on an R.E.M. record? Did you do something with yeah, that? Yeah, I did. Uh, I was. I played on, um, uh, was it Five? Fireplace? Was it, it was, you were on Fireplace? Yeah I, played on, yeah, I played on Fireplace. And I um, I played on a remix of works. There's a there's a pretty killer the finest remix work song. of uh, Finest Work Song with uh, with a horn section on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Fireplace. And I think there's there was one more. I think I, I did a couple songs with them. Good I, work to Fireplace. Jesus. Thank you. to ask you about the worst record you ever produced uh, -uh. Uh, it's, it's it's wow. by deer tick oh, negativity by deer tick <laughs> i love this guys that's i that's one of my favorites you kidding me what was the thinking going into that record was there a a, a goal or was it just for, like whatever for deer tick yeah for that negative negative oh no record. i mean so i had done all right so um this is a good story so we're playing lobos is playing in, in providence rhode island Mm-hmm. And uh, back in that era, uh, we would sign. We after the show, we would sign CDs and posters and whatever anybody wanted to sign. So we would like, you know, at the end of the show, they set up a table and you know we would go out and sign shit. And you know, like you could sort of get a sense, like you know, sometimes they're like super fans, sometimes it's like first time fans. And I could see, like, I'm looking down the line, and I could see <laughs> this guy down the line. And his eyes are literally doing this. They're like, they're like going like cartoony, like they're going in different directions. And I'm like, All right. God, you know, not, I mean, I get sort of, I know this dude's going to be trouble <laughs> and he's getting closer and getting closer. And I could tell he's just got this look on his face. He's like staring at me with his like these <laughs> weird fucking eyes. I'm like, I'm just like, you know, I'm starting like, you know, I get like that fight or flight thing. So I'm like, right. All right, I got my, you know, pretend tough guy thing on. And all right, so he pulls up in front of him, and the guy's got like a fucking pillowcase, like a like a hotel pillowcase, with him, like you know, like like. And okay, he goes, "Hey," he goes, "You know what?" He goes, "You and me, we're gonna make a record together." 
Uh-huh. Oh, God. Yeah. And I go, yeah, you bet, pal. He goes, no, nah, man, you and me, we're going to make a record together. I said, yeah. He goes, I'm John McCauley. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, and now, you know, I was I was a big Deer Tick fan, but I was a much I was a bigger fan of the Middle Brother record. You guys familiar with that yeah. Middle Brother yeah. record, the record you did with um, with uh, the dude from Dawes and uh, Matthew Logan Vasquez. And I, that record, I mean, that was like my favorite record of that moment was the Middle Brother record. It was just like it sounded like. It sounded like the faces, like the way that the faces record sounds like somebody just put a recording studio in the middle of a party mm-hmm. and they got and they would just cut these songs like literally in the middle of a party. That's the feeling that I got from the middle brother record. Like, how do you make a great record with great songs and great singing in the middle of what sounds like you're absolutely raging right. crazy at a party? And that's so like I was like, I was like, wait a minute, you're John McCauley from Deer Tick? Yeah, fuck Yeah. And I said, John McCauley, you're from Middle Brother. He goes, fuck yeah. Yeah. And I said, all right, I guess we're going to, I guess we will. And he goes, okay, man, here, you want some mushrooms? And he opens up the pillowcase and it's like, little, it's like full of fucking mushrooms. I'm like, no, I think I'll, I'll, I'll hold off on the mushrooms for now. And so this is the amazing part. So I, you know, and I will say, I should have said earlier, like you asked how I got, you know, how I could be in a band and produce records it's because my wife is a, is a saint. And she understands, you know, this is important to me and this is the thing that I really want to do. So I don't, you know, like I don't, she let, she says, you know, if it's important to you, then it's important to me. So yeah, we, we had been on the road for like two or three weeks at that point. And it was, you know, it's midsummer, I think. And so, you know, just getting into the trip, you know, I hadn't, I've been gone all summer pretty much. So I called home that night. And I just said, oh, I got to tell you the story. And I told her, you know, pretty much the exact story I told you. And I'm like, you know, but I, I said, you know, this guy's really, you know, he's made some really amazing records. I'm, I'm a huge fan of, and you know, he wants, he wants me to go in the recording studio. Like, I mean, it was like the, 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 uh, the, the diamond rugs record, what became the diamond rugs record right. was like, it, the studio was booked like two weeks later. Yeah. And she goes, you know what? I think you should do it. I got a good feeling about it. I was like, you know, this guy's crazy. I don't know any of these people. They're all like, they're, I have no, I mean, I'm, so far out of my comfort zone she goes no you should do it you should i get it i got a good feeling about it it's something i feel you should do two weeks later i'd show up at at the nashville airport and macaulay picks me up in the the deer tick van which is like i described you know like the blasters van is is smelling like a like a a crypt like i mean the the deer tick van you can't even imagine how fucked up that thing was it was just like (laughs) the seats weren't the seats weren't bolted down like they're just like literally like you know they pull away from a light the seat falls over right and you know he had been john had been up for at least two or three days at that point and you could just tell you know like i've been around you caught him at a good time like you could just you know they just have that like kind of like glow of of, you know it's like they're coated in vaseline like he was so fucked up but i came to understand that that's his process like he was like he was the most high functioning extremely fucked up dude i've ever been around like he could like literally stay awake for a week and write and sing this like just break your fucking heart with like something incredible at the literal end of human endurance <laughs> like anybody else would be like collapsed or in the emergency room and he would just take it out to that point and still like i, I watched him do it over and over and over again yeah so um so that became so that record became diamond rugs which you know people out there if you're not familiar i'd say go run out and go check out diamond rugs i think those records are really 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 good i'm really really proud of them did not i had nothing to do with it. i just 
I just a member of the band. Didn't produce them, but I um, Christmas in a Chinese restaurant. Christmas. I watched. He wrote that. So he had been up, I think, for a couple of days, and he was sitting at the piano, and he was like, he couldn't even hold his head up. So it's, it's an upright piano, and his head is leaning against the thing. And I'm, I'm just, I'm just sitting there. I'm watching him. I'm like, how does this guy do this? <laughs> He's doing it every day. He just gets, he heads it so hard, and he starts playing those chords. And I watched him write that song. In that in, in fucked up little recording studio in Nashville, and it was just like, I don't fucking believe this is a, unbelievable. Yeah. It just like and it just like it just came to me. It's just like you know, like great songwriters. It just the shit just it just comes through them, and it came through him. And he sat there and hey, I got an idea for a Christmas song. I said, Yeah, I know. I just <laughs> yeah, I just heard it. <laughs> I, I heard it, and we just cut it then and there. It's you know, it's one of my favorite Christmas songs ever. It's it's fucking great. So it's a good one. I ate Chinese food on Christmas Day. You kicked me out because I told the kids that Santa's sleigh did not exist. I was drunk and you got pissed. But anyways, have a very merry Christmas. What's interesting about that is they were partying as hard as I, you know, like they were, they were known for that. And it was real. Like they were, they were party. They were their thing. Uh, when we, the EP. And then by the time we came back to do the record, like what the rest of it, they had toned it way down. Like yes. they were, yeah. they, they were like, you know, I mean, you wouldn't, it wasn't like they were necessarily responsible citizens, but like they had sort of figured out that it really wasn't super effective. Like, you know, they're, they, I think they were, I'd like to think that they realized that they were a better band than, you know, they were allowing themselves to be by, you know, being the hardiest part, hardest partying band in the world. I mean, like, I don't know if they would agree with that, you know, but I would say well, for me yeah. anyway, it's literally like, wow, you know, like you guys really are one of the best bands in America, you know, like you just like, you know, just try a little harder. And, you know, no, I didn't really ever say that to them, but, no. you know, I think they, they, they kind of figured it out. And uh, no, you caught him at a very at a very high point. I remember going into Nashville. John had booked a session at that that studio that uh, what's his uh, face owns. Yeah. Uh, and play, playground, right? Playground? Right. The one that yeah. the, the, yeah. the D. Yeah, Rugs the, record was done. Yeah, D. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I, I show up into Nashville thinking that they're still, you know, going to. And, and this is the one that had uh, a pot of gold on it and three mm. little babies. And, you know, so I was playing like the guitar and stuff on that. He's like, come by and just be on this. I show up and I'm just like, I'm ready to go. Like it was the old days on tour. And mm. they're just kind of like, no, and I'm just like, <laughs> I'm way too drunk. I'm like, what's going on? I'm just like, nah, not anymore. Um, yeah. Well, I'm sorry if that happened uh, because of me, but you know, it, it, I, no, it wasn't because of you. No. Oh, good. I mean, they still, you know, I mean, it's now that, you know, like I, I just saw John a couple of weeks ago. We, I, we played at uh, Newport and got to hang out. You know, he, he played with us, which was amazing. Um, you know, he still enjoys his, uh, his drinks, but, uh, you know, nothing that those, I, I will like, I had never, like, I hadn't actually, I would not even seen, like, I know that they're drug dealers, like, I, but I, you know, like, it's not that hard to get drugs, right? You know, like, just from yeah. your friends or like, you right. know, if but it, like, we had drug dealers coming to the recording studio. We were making, the, the, doing the, like, the EP, like, oh, God, they're drug dealers still. Like, <laughs> it's Portland. You can just go downtown and get this stuff. But no, Steve, they're called D Rugs. Oh, right. That's right. I think, 
It's not yeah. it's not a subtle point they're making. Uh, yeah, that's that. Well, that's what it was called. You know, it's damn, I'm on drugs. That's Simon Rhodes. Yeah. But well, this yeah, has been great. Grew out of it. Thanks. Yeah, for man, doing it's been it. fun. My pleasure, yeah, man. And, uh, you know, you're great. And uh, I hope the yeah. story is me- measured up. You know, I don't, you know. Yeah, if there's anything you you, you feel like you, you, yeah, you can come back and tell us about Ricky Lee Jones and, you know. Oh, yeah. Yes. I could. (laughs) Yeah. Crash test dummies for Gabe. Crash test dummies. Yeah. I heard that, you know. I, I'm, I, I was there, so yeah, I mean, you were there. I, I give you, give you my end of the story. Yeah. All right. <laughs> They're Canadian, though, right? Very, 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 as Canadian as it gets. Yeah. Actually, no award true. winners. No. Yeah. Who's, yeah, the award mo- winners? <laughs> Who's the most Canadian band? Well, tragically hip, obviously. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I was going to say Loverboy. Well, I mean. How would you define most Canadian? You know, like most Canadian virtues. Uh, I would, you know, I mean, in Mike's of the of the Canadian artists that I've ever worked with, the, the the hip were only because they they were that was their mantle. They were, you know, they were like you two is Ireland. The hip right. was to Canada. Like they they had to uh, they had to live up to that every day, all day every yeah. every album every show like there was you know they, they couldn't slack they couldn't you know they couldn't be seen you know they they were they were heroes literally here and they remain literal heroes in canadian society which is something that i didn't really i didn't know when that I, when i started working with them i had absolutely no idea i had no i i tell a story that i uh and this is literally true like you know i i had become like they were aware of some of the work that i had been doing and they through the people around me, they, they were, they wanted to talk to me about producing. And so I was, uh, I was working on another Canadian. I happened to be in Vancouver working on another record. Uh, this guy, Stephen Fearing, who is another fantastic singer, songwriter, amazing guitar player. Um, uh, and I was, so I was in a studio in Vancouver and the phone rang and it was, uh, I think it was my manager telling me that we were about to go, tour with the hip and they wanted to sit down and talk to me about working with their working with them on the record. So I was like, Oh, okay, cool. And you know, great. I mean, I was always happy to somebody wanted me to do something. I put the phone down and I said, like, kind of like just out into the space I was in, like, Oh, that's cool. Tragically hit wants me to talk to me about making a record. It was literally like, it was like one of those sitcom, like Danny Thomas, you know, Dick Van Dyke shows like everybody stops and you hear like, like somebody like like whatever coffee cup drops on the floor and like like wait what the hell and they said what did you say and like so that was my manager is you know, this band the tragically hip wants to work with me and like no fucking way no way no like they're like yeah no it's I why would I make that up like no fucking way man that's you can't, why no would fucking I make way. that up like, you can't no seriously they just say I, I, I listen like I just said they want to. They didn't. They literally couldn't believe that that was actually going to happen. So it did. So their rush, Gordon Lightfoot levels of Canadian hero. Yeah. Oh, oh way beyond. When, when you know, no like, idea. Do you know that? Do you know the story? So they're, I mean, they're, they're amazing people, and I love working with them. Um, you don't know the story about this. So the singer um, Gore Downey, who is truly one of the most amazing, one of the most amazing people I've ever worked with. 
very tragically got diagnosed with a glioblastoma, like an incurable brain tumor, um, at 40, like, you know, like way, way, way too young. And the prognosis for those is like, you know, if you're going to die six months, you know, maybe if you're lucky, you know. And uh, he decided, well, if that's going to happen, I'm going to go out my way. And they they did a tour, final tour, like from West Coast to East Coast. And uh, it's uh, it was really emotional. It was, uh, wow. I mean, I can't even think about it without crying, but they, uh, it was just so powerful just to, you know, and it was just an amazing thing to watch. Like he was, it was so brave. You could tell he was just really, you know, I mean, he was still, he was a, a rock star. Like he was, you know, my friend, but he was like, he was all day, every day. He was a rock star and he managed to maintain all of that while his brain was literally like disappearing. Oh man. And uh, it was overwhelming and the you know if you watch there's a great i i can't actually watch it but there was a there's a documentary of it and it was like the, the whole country was celebrating and literally in mourning in real time as this tour was moving west to east like and you have no idea it was like uh, there's amazing. no there's nothing in american culture that could possibly compare unless like springsteen decided it's like something horrible i mean god forbid right. like something horrible happened to bruce and like everybody all the, but he, but even then like there's people who don't like bruce who you know there's like you know like obviously he's kind of you know he's an old man now but i mean this was like imagine like a young like imagine bruce like like born in uh you know uh, born in the usa right. getting diagnosed and going out that way i mean that's the only that's the only paradigm i could possibly compare it to um and so yeah i mean that that was that was heavy and that's why I think they they will be you know the best and forever always the you know the most Canadian band. Wow. Well, I, listen, I did not think this was going to happen when I brought up the crash test dummies. <laughs> Me neither, but you know, I mean, there's, it, you know, I like I said, I, I've been really, 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 really lucky. I mean, I got to work with and hang out with some incredible people, and you know, just to be in the room for a lot of those records was uh, kind of yeah. mind-boggling. I am going to watch that movie. That sounds that sounds yeah, it's, amazing. It's pretty powerful, man. And they were, you know, like they never, you know, I mean, they got their timing. I mean, they're gods in Canada, but like their timing, like they were, they would make a great record and they would be on a terrible label in America, and they or they mm. make like a not a great record, and then like the the label would try and sell it, and like nobody really understood, you know, like you had to sort of, it's not a band you could just come into cold. You sort of had to understand like what what they were like, you know, obviously the lyrics were very, very Canadian. Like he'd talk about a lot of, I mean, they were still very evocative. You didn't need to be Canadian to, to understand what a great song it was, but a lot of the stuff that he wrote about and sung about was, you know, Canadian history and like, like, especially Canadian history that like nobody, like, you know, like they should have been like swept under the rug and how they treated the, you know, the native Canadians and stuff like that. So it was, uh, you sort of had to, it wasn't an easy sell. It wasn't like you two or, you know, like, kind of to go a little deep to get it but you know i think they're one of the best bands ever i really do well you convinced me all right yeah go check them out especially the movie you know you see it live i mean it was you know they're live they're unbelievable i'll check it out cool who would have thought this thing would have taught me something hey i you know (laughs) i i'm nothing if not a teacher you are a teacher (laughs) you're one of the great ones man thanks a lot thanks so much man i really enjoyed it man
on 